I'm Cynthia Hutchison. I'm the head of the new U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing. If you didn't just catch the video of the C-21 at Laguna, you'll want to go back and watch it. We just witnessed Kevin Singer commit an act of true competitive rebellion. His team's 3D printed hypercar beat the previous production record set by a McLaren P1 by more than six seconds. Incredible. So how did Kevin and his team do it? My colleague Ron Stefanski and I had a chance to hear from Kevin about how he and the Divergent 3D Singer vehicle team started with a blank slate. They not only built a car, but they built a new means of manufacturing, a new means of assembly and production with state-of-the-art technologies. All in all, over the past seven years, with $400 million in invested capital, the Singer team has obtained over 500 patents for developing proprietary software and advanced manufacturing processes that have all been EPA and crash test certified. This is a game changer for us. Kevin is animated. We wanted to get deep into this discussion. Let him tell his story completely and you'll hear from him. That's why we're producing this in multiple segments. So sit back, relax, listen, hear from an accomplished scientist, entrepreneur, and engineer who's about to take the world stage. This is not a story about some imagined future state. The future is right here. It's right now in front of us, and you can see it here with us at the U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing. Good afternoon, listeners and viewers. This is Ron Stefanski, the host of Disrupt Ed, and I have a couple of exciting things to share today. Today marks the debut of our Advanced Manufacturing Edition. Now, what does that mean? It means that we're continuing to talk to disruptors, but we're expanding the scope of whom we're speaking with. And today, to start things off and to make this debut, we are going to have an epic podcast with two heavyweights. The first person, uh, just with full disclosure, is my work colleague, friend, and now the head of the U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing, Cynthia Hutchison. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Ron. All right. Great. And also with us today is an epic thought leader, entrepreneur, social activist, former Hall of Famer, Kevin Singer. Now, I, as I introduce him, this is going to sound hyperbolic to some of you, but the truth is the next few episodes you're going to hear from us are going to feature someone who's going to remind you of Stephen Jobs and his impact on society. Just thrilling to have you here, Kevin. And for our audience, just so you know, we're not going to restrain Kevin in any way. So we're going to do this in several segments. So at the 20-minute mark, we'll click on to episode two. So stay tuned for the series on Kevin because it is going to be worthwhile. Kevin, welcome to Disrupt Ed. Thanks so much, Ron. I mean, it's it's my honor to be here, and honestly, I'm very humbled by that uh, that introduction. <laughs> I obviously don't see myself in, in that way, but but thanks so much for the for the kind uh, introduction. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, you know, one of the things that we've noticed, uh, and my various guest hosts have noticed, is that all my disrupting. Uh, speakers have one thing in common. They have a very high, it's an analytic that we use. It's a very high GSD index, which means they get shit done. And you probably qualify off the charts on that score. You've accomplished a lot as a student athlete, as a Marine Corps vet. 
as a lawyer on Wall Street going after the robber barons of the world in securities fraud. And now you've turned your attention to manufacturing. Fill us in on how you made it along that journey and what inspired you to get into manufacturing and to start diversion in the first place. Well, I mean, get, giving kind of a, a, a kind of high-speed review of my life, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I was the youngest of five, very blue-collar family. You know, my older brothers were uh, mechanics and race car builders, mainly, you know, uh, for drag racing. And, you know, I grew up considerably younger than uh, my two older brothers and two older sisters. And so... Mm-hmm. Very early on, I was being taught to read at a very early age. We had a Carnegie Library at the end of the street. So I was reading about science and engineering, and I was fascinated by aerospace and obviously Kelly Johnson, SR-71, uh, you know, NASA's X-15. And at the same time, I was building mini bikes and helping my brothers uh, you know, build cars and race cars, act as a, a pit crew to them. And then... I was looking at this and thinking, obviously, when you're that age, you know, as a teenager, you know, how do I take this science and in my garage, you know, create something, you know, Hardy Boys, you know, building a rocket in their garage, you have that fantasy, you know, fast forward through football, I had the opportunity to go to a very elite university, and then over time, also study molecular biophysics and biochemistry and, uh, uh, electrical engineering, albeit that that I did at uh, Arizona State, uh, 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 Ira Fulton School of Engineering. I did three years of electrical engineering. But as I'm doing this and taking all of these steps, those led to about 15 years ago, my co-founding an EV car company and an EV battery manufacturing company. And what I would say is in setting up that battery manufacturing company. And that was the first company to design a large format uh, uh, lithium iron phosphate prismatic cell. So if you you know go on uh, YouTube, you'll see me uh, uh, giving a two minute or so tour uh, video uh, to the Secretary of Commerce of the US and to a number of the time Politburo members of the Chinese government. And by 2010, that was the first uh, battery mega factory for you know, purpose-built uh, EV uh, batteries. And you know, it was a million square feet uh, mega factory. And at that time, we were also doing a conversion of an internal combustion engine vehicle to an EV. And I spent more on the conversion of that car, the tooling for the car body and the fixturing of the factory, than all of the the capital that we spent on technology development for that car. And I looked at that and said, uh, you know, and being a reader and thinker, and, you know, it is true, I am a nonstop voracious reader and thinker, you know, I'll plead to that. Uh, you know, I looked and said, a hundred years ago, Bud Steele took its system, which was a system for stamping rail car interiors, mm-hmm. and introduced it to the auto industry to do uh, 
uh, uh, unibody construction for the first time, you know, that licensing of that technology is what actually in the 30s allowed the global auto industry to scale volumes. I looked and said, that's 100 years old. Yeah. It's analog. It's not optimized. It's single gauge of materials being stamped or uh, casted uh, uh, alloys. Right. And we're still doing things using this. We've obviously optimized it, automated it but it's still the architecture of a fundamental analog system. And here we had an industry which was being digitalized everywhere, except at its core. And it reminded me of, and I'm dating myself, when in the 70s, IBM said they were gonna digitalize the IBM Selectric and they added two lines of memory. No, you have to go back and say, what's the digital architecture that I start with? What is the system? What's the system level economics? What are the subsystems? What is real optimized design in a full digital system? What is real materialization with whatever additive manufacturing technology and materials in a real digital system? What is fixtureless assembly? What is digital assembly? Because if you don't figure out digital assembly, you don't have a digital system. And there was no digital assembly that existed. So I looked at that and said to myself, here's an opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper and create a digital system. And that was about, really the thinking about it was eight, nine, 10 years ago. Does that answer your question? Yes, it also blows my mind when you think about it. Cynthia, you're gonna well, jump in here. Well to that point, and I think one of the things that I know we're, we're working at with all the manufacturers we work with is, you know, trying to make sure that the manufacturers understand that that software first mindset that you need to have in order to actually get through this transformation. But I think that people respond to things like what you're doing with Divergent and the technologies that are available to now lead manufacturing into the next 100 years or the next 20 years or the next 11 years, because we know the times are getting constrained. As people look at that, I think they respond with what you just said with one of two reactions, fear or opportunity. And as a rule, the, the opportunity is very much led by those who are visionary and can see much like you did, in a, in a different way, see, how do we take this to do, how does this give my company a chance to leverage the technology to be better, faster, greater? And I think the other side, the fear is often led by the legacy. So how do we bring those together? Do we, or do we give up that dream? Well, I can tell you if it's helpful, what my tactics and strategy were to introduce this technology <clears throat> into the automotive industry. Uh, and so my, my company was founded about seven years ago. Uh, I was the sole employee. It really was me filing a series of patents after I looked at the patent white space and developed a patent strategy uh, for the company. And then I started hiring people once I understood all of the physics and costs of the individual subsystems that I was looking to uh, design and build. But at, at that point, as I started to do this, I was very lucky in that I had a relationship going back to my EV car company days with, uh, you know, very driven, very innovative uh, uh, chairman and CEO of one of the top five 
major uh, automotive group manufacturers and uh, was able to sit down because he also saw that, you know, the industry was in a situation where the the fixed asset leverage model had worked very well when you had relatively few uh, auto manufacturers with an oligopoly structure and the model volumes were high. Now we were looking and going back to, to that EV car that you know was being built out of an internal combustion engine uh, uh, platform as a conversion. I was looking and he was looking and saying cost numerator, tooling, fixturing, multiple variants, cost skyrocketing along with R&D in that uh, in that numerator. Equation, right. The, the, the uh, denominator that would amortize that cost of model volumes steeply declining, not only being split by uh, variant volumes each being less but also by intensive competition look at china itself you know 31 provinces or province level uh cities each of which has two three sometimes five car companies being supported there that volume is going to steeply decline and the amortization schedule collapse how do you move from something which is design constrained and capital intensive because of its, its uh, lock-in to specific tooling and fixturing, how do you uh, go to a digital system and, and uh, address that economic issue? And so he was open as to how from technology standpoint, how from a technology standpoint you could do that. And so, Five years ago, we started uh, uh, on programs where as of 2020, like you know, moving forward from five years ago to 2020, by the end of 2020, we had taken, and what I said to him is, let's take existing vehicle architecture that you have. Let's take an existing vehicle so you have a fallback structure. And then let's take all of your processes, existing processes, once you would receive a digitally manufactured structure will integrate into all of the rest of those assembly processes. So I took a rear frame and I said, here's a good uh, project. This is a multi-component rear frame. So it will show the entire design optimization, printing plus assembly process, You know, the entire system uh, execution and economics. It will show that from a risk standpoint, give me a production PO, but I will only invoice you if I achieve each milestone. So I'll limit your program risk by taking an existing structure, an existing architecture. I'll limit your cost by putting it through, for example, the same you know, 200 degree C paint process that you use once that frame is uh, attached to the vehicle. You can take it through and we'll baseline it against the performance of that existing structure, except I'll take, depending on whether it's made out of aluminum or steel, 20 to 60% of the mass out of that structure while meeting all of your baselines. And so by the end of 2020, 
we had gone from elemental materials characterization through full vehicle on-road durability and crash. We'd shown the production system was qualified from a rate and cost standpoint. And we had been through all of the necessary tier one safety structure supplier audits and had all of the qualifications like uh, IETF uh, 16949, 2016, uh, et Once you did that, and so that was my way, I anonymized that data. And in uh, last year, you know, we went from having done that, and I was very fortuitous to, to have uh, a CEO who I knew, who was interested in this, who thought that, you know, the auto industry was addicted to capital and, you know, you needed to either consolidate it or, in my case, provide a technology solution and drive through in their organization, you know, coupled with my proposals on risk mitigation, you know, a set of tactics that allowed me to build the technology to commercialize it, to take that data then and then go out to other OEMs on a, an anonymized basis with the data and say, you know, this has been through full, you know, on-road durability and crash. This has been production qualified for rate and cost. We have these audits and this audit results and data. Then we went out and very quickly other auto companies, you know, and that's how we grew our pipeline now, followed on in the same type of programs, which I'd say are programs where they're taking suspension systems, front and rear frames on existing vehicles, and I'm risk mitigating for them again. And, you know, those cars, the first of those cars, you know, which is a car that'll be in its hundreds, but we now have programs where for the life of vehicles, it ranges from hundreds to literally over 300,000 vehicles in a five-year life of vehicle volume. We now have that pipeline built. And I'd say the next steps really are get vehicles on the road this year. You know, we are going to build exclusively out of our LA uh, factory uh, over the next two years to kind of, uh, bulletproof our system. But then we're going to start to scale using a factory as a service model. In 2024, we'll have two additional factories uh, in Europe each of which is going to be serving multiple OEMs on multiple programs. And that model, you know, which we're calling factory as a service, is a little bit like Amazon Web Services infrastructure for the web. I mean, when we tried to build a games company in the late 90s, we had to create our own tools and we had to create our own infrastructure. Amazon did that, but it learned with its infrastructure that, you know, especially in retail, capacity went up and down. And so it started to farm out its capacity. Here I'm looking and obviously I use tiny amount of capacity of our capacity for Zinger vehicles and use it to you know, have Zinger vehicles as our, our beta power user of all of our tools and technology. But then I take that model and I start to scale it. So I'm really providing infrastructure uh, providing tools to design that are obviously connected only to our materials and our manufacturing and assembly mm -hmm. process. And then I provide that manufacturing and assembly uh, capacity. So when you're talking about adoption, I viewed it as get the first commercial steps, which are really product validation, uh, system uh, production qualification, 
and audits, build pipeline, feed out of this factory, replicate, start to scale, and then start to show people both through Zinger and some of these initial adopters how you can move from you know, replacement parts with much less mass to fully optimized vehicle structure to potentially becoming like fabulous product design companies. Like Apple is a fabulous right. design company and hardware. Right. And that is turning the auto industry 180 degrees. And I'd say, you know, first step is vehicles out on the road in September. But I think now we're going to see, I mean, what I'm going to try to uh, drive toward, you know, uh, God willing, is uh, taking this model, replicating it and driving that kind of digital, fabulous, localized, democratized uh, manufacturing. So one of the things you've underplayed is the, your, your, for want of a better term, your proof of concept came with somebody with whom you had a long-standing trusted relationship. Um, and the more of those you have, I mean, one of the things that we always look forward to building is creating opportunities where people trust one another. So trusted partners and a collaboration. So you work very collaboratively and you started kind of in a top down with somebody who trusted you, was willing to collaborate and had the, the voice of the industry, I presume, enough to help you message that. I'll flip it to Ron for an actual question. I just want to observe that that, that partnership model was really exciting to hear. Yeah, no, that was, you know, that was hugely beneficial, you know, very fortuitous, really a, a blessing in that first dead step of the company. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, for my listening and viewing audience, uh, you're listening to Cynthia Hutchison from the U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing and Kevin Singer from Singer Vehicles and Divergent 3D, who's just completed a very successful printing of a hypercar. And you've been listening in on how he's done this and how it's going to impact the industry. Kevin, I want to get a little provocative here. I was having dinner recently with a University of Michigan professor who has studied lean manufacturing from a systems perspective throughout his career. He's the author. His name is Jeff Liker. He's the author of the, the Toyota Way. And so he helped to socialize what the Japanese had done to manufacturing. And um, when I asked him the question, you know, where is 3D printing and where is additive manufacturing going to fall into this? Is this going to completely disrupt um, life as we know it in the world of manufacturing? And he said, in, you know, over time. And so I think for everyone listening into this amazing discovery of what you've built um, is going to want an answer to that question. You're working with some major trusted partners, but from your predictive standpoint, how do you see this rolling out into the world of manufacturing? Because what you're talking about is, to be candid, very explosive and very disruptive. Well, what, 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 I, what I'd say is, uh, you know, unless you have a vision for something and you've created something new, it's very difficult if you're looking at the existing state of an industry to think in more than incremental ways, right? I mean, there's incremental evolution as we know, and then there's punctuated evolution. As mm -hmm. we know, and I'll, I'll use a crude analogy, say IBM. IBM, if somebody said in the 70s, 
what is the computing company that's dominant in the world? It's IBM. What did IBM literally acres said the CEO at the time uh, said uh, there will end up being a dozen mainframe computers in the world in 20 years. This is all about the mainframe. The reason why, uh, you know, Bill Gates made his money, you know, with the operating system is they thought this was a hobby. And so they went and said to him, hey, can you find an operating system we can use for like this hobby volume computer, right? Which he then termed, in turn licensed the system and, and then in turn licensed it to IBM. But you're talking about somebody going, you know, we look back today and was like, what are they thinking about? Right. Somebody put out a product very quickly. By the way, you know, the famous story about Steve, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, going into uh, 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 Xerox Park and then seeing the graphical user interface. Go to Wikipedia, put in the mother of all demos in 1969. In December of 1969, Doug Engelbart, who was the researcher who had put together that uh, that desktop, had presented in the mother of all demos the entire architecture for uh, that computer uh, and graphical user face that Steve Jobs saw in 1969. If and Doug Engelbart was a researcher, he wasn't uh, an entrepreneur. If he uh -huh. had taken those ideas in 1969, he could have revolutionized things. You know, I, as I said, I read a lot and think a lot. I looked and, and to me, there's a difference between somebody who's in the IBM world and somebody who's saying, you know what, I'm going to step back and take a fresh architecture, you know, and obviously you're taking enormous risk. You can look like a total fool. I mean, I raised hundreds of millions of dollars and I had literally more than a dozen go, no go. Either you invent something new or I just looked like a fool to all of my investors. I incinerated hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. I used my relationships in the auto industry, you know, with the CEO I was closest to, all for naught. And, you know, I've hired 200 super talented scientists and engineers for naught. You need to be willing to put those things together and to do that. The second thing I would say is September right now, we have a start of production with a major auto manufacturer, not 10 years from now. You know, so I'd say respectfully to uh, Professor Liker, this is not 10 years off. It is several months off. And, you know, in fact, we have production programs with automakers, major name automakers, you know, brands within all within the top 10 uh, uh, major uh, manufacturing groups by volume that are going into production uh, SOP between now and 2025, a few of which are in the hundreds of thousands over the life of the vehicle. Kevin, I'm going to I'm going to end us here. 
And to our listening and viewing audience, this has been Disrupt Ed, the podcast where we talk to the disruptors. And we have started the manufacturing edition with Kevin Singer from Divergent 3D and Cynthia Hutchinson from the U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing. Stay tuned for episode two.